This is the third part of the National Covenant or the Confession of Faith. The fourth term of communion says that public social covenanting is an ordinance of God, obligatory on churches and nations under the New Testament, that the National Covenant and the Solemn League are an exemplification of this divine institution and that these deeds are of continued obligation upon the moral person. A couple weeks ago we talked about the first part of the National Covenant, (coughs) which was really the section known as the the Negative Confession, uh, the Covenant of 1581. It was described by uh, Philip Schaff, the church historian, as the most anti-Romish of all of the Reformational creeds and catechisms. Uh, Last week, then, we looked (coughs) at the the Acts of Parliament, what what has been called the the legal enactment, uh, the legal section. In all likelihood, uh, this portion was done by Archibald Johnson, Lord Warriston, who was the first clerk of the the General Assembly in 1638. (coughs) Johnston spells out in some detail in that all of the legal uh, bases for renewing the covenant and and really for uh, upholding the Reformed religion in Scotland, showing that the laws of the land were in favor of what they were doing when they were about to renew the covenant. The last section of the of this national covenant uh, was also written right before it was subscribed in 1638. <coughs> this section <coughs> this section is known as the uh, the accommodation. Uh, this is the section where they're making present application of the of this covenant, this renewal, uh, in their generation. Uh, the author of this is primarily thought to be Alexander Henderson. Henderson was um, to go on to become one of the Westminster divines. Henderson was the moderator of the General Assembly in 1638. Uh, he was very, very prominent amongst covenanting Presbyterians, in large part because of his resistance <coughs> to Charles I's uh, attempt to impose a liturgy, a prayer book. <coughs> okay, so I'm going to read this section. Uh, the I want you to pay attention to the allusions to what the present situation is at the time. And then we'll talk about some of the doctrinal uh, principles that are raised by this section. Uh, So, after the legal enactments are listed, the confession... National Covenant continues. 
in obedience to the commandment of God, conform to the practice of the godly in former times, and according to the laudable example of our worthy and religious progenitors, and of many yet living amongst us, which was so warranted also by act of counsel, commanding a general band to be made and subscribed by his majesty's subjects of all ranks. That word band, by that word band they mean covenant. (coughs) (coughs) Commanding a general band to be made and subscribed by his majesty's subjects of all ranks for two causes. One was for defending the true religion as it was then reformed and is expressed in the Confession of Faith above written, and a former large confession established by sundry acts of lawful general assemblies and parliaments unto which it hath relation set down in public catechisms, and which hath been for many years with a blessing from heaven, preached and professed in this church and kingdom as God's undoubted truth, grounded only upon his written word, The other cause was for maintaining the king's majesty, his person and estate, the true worship of God and the king's authority being so straightly joined as that they had the same friends and common enemies and did stand and fall together. And finally being convinced in our minds and confessing with our mouths that the present and succeeding generations in this land are bound to keep the foresaid national oath and subscription inviolable. (coughs) We noblemen, barons, gentlemen, burgesses, ministers, and commons under subscribing, considering diverse times before and especially at this time, the danger of the true reformed religion, of the king's honor, and of the public peace of the kingdom, by the manifold innovations and evils generally contained and particularly mentioned in our late supplications, complaints, and protestations, do hereby profess, and before God, his angels, and the world, solemnly declare that with our whole heart we agree and resolve all the days of our life constantly to adhere unto and to defend the foresaid true religion, and forbearing the practice of all innovations already introduced in the matters of the worship of God, or approbation of the corruptions of the public government of this church, or civil places and power of churchmen, till they be tried and allowed in free assemblies and in parliament, to labor by all means lawful, to recover the purity and liberty of the gospel, as it was established and professed before the foresaid novations. Because after due examination, we plainly perceive and undoubtedly believe that the innovations and evils contained in our supplications, complaints, and protestations have no warrant of the word of God, are contrary to the articles of the foresaid confession, to the intention and meaning of the blessed reformers of religion in this land, to the above-written acts of Parliament, and do sensibly tend to the reestablishing of the popish religion and tyranny, and to the subversion and ruin of the true reformed religion, and of our liberties, laws, and estates, we also declare that the foresaid confessions are to be interpreted and ought to be understood of the foresaid novations and evils, no less than if every one of them had been expressed in the foresaid confessions. 
and that we are obliged to detest and abhor them, amongst other particular heads of papistry abjured therein. And therefore, from the knowledge and conscience of our duty to God, to our king and country, without any worldly respect or inducement, so far as human infirmity will suffer, wishing a further measure of grace of God for this effect, we promise and swear by the great name of the Lord our God to continue in the profession and obedience of the foresaid religion and that we shall defend the same and resist all these contrary errors and corruptions according to our vocation and to the uttermost of that power that God hath put in our hands all the days of our life. And in like manner with the same heart we declare before God and men that we have no intention nor desire to attempt anything that may turn to the dishonor of God or to the diminution of the king's greatness and authority. But on the contrary, we promise and swear that we shall, to the uttermost of our power, with our means and lives, stand to the defense of our dread sovereign, the king's majesty, his person and authority, in the defense and preservation of the foresaid true religion, liberties, and laws of the kingdom, as also to the mutual defense and assistance, every one of us, of another, in the same cause of maintaining the true religion and his majesty's authority, with our best counsel, our bodies, means, and whole power, against all sorts of persons whatsoever, so that whatsoever shall be done to the least of us for that cause shall be taken as done to us all in general and to every one of us in particular. <clears throat> and that we shall neither directly nor indirectly suffer ourselves to be divided or withdrawn by whatsoever suggestion, combination, allurement, or terror from this blessed and loyal conjunction. Nor shall cast in any let or impediment that may stay or hinder any such resolution as by common consent shall be found to conduce for so good ends. But on the contrary, shall by all lawful means labor to further and promote the same. And if any such dangerous and divisive motion be made to us by word or writ, we and every one of us shall either suppress it, or if need be, shall incontinent make the same known that it may be timiously obviated. Neither do we fear the foul aspersions of rebellion, combination, or what else our adversaries from their craft and malice would put upon us, seeing what we do is so well warranted and ariseth from an unfeigned desire to maintain the true worship of God, the majesty of our king, and the peace of the kingdom for the common happiness of ourselves and our posterity. And because we cannot look for a blessing from God upon our proceedings except with our profession and subscription, we join such a life and conversation as beseemeth Christians who've renewed their covenant with God. We therefore faithfully promise for ourselves, our followers, and all others under us, both in public and in our particular families and personal carriage, to endeavor to keep ourselves within the bounds of Christian liberty and be good examples to others of all godliness, soberness, and righteousness, and of every duty we owe to God and man. And that this our union and conjunction may be observed without violation, we call the living God, 
the searcher of our hearts, to witness, who knoweth this to be our sincere desire and unfeigned resolution, as we shall answer to Jesus Christ in the great day and under the pain of God's everlasting wrath and of infamy and loss of all honor and respect in this world, most humbly beseeching the Lord to strengthen us by his Holy Spirit for this end and to bless our desires and proceedings with a happy success that religion and righteousness may flourish in the land to the glory of God, the honor of our King, and peace and comfort of us all. In witness whereof we have subscribed with our hands all the premises. The article of this covenant, which was at the first subscription, referred to the determination of the General Assembly being now determined, and thereby the five articles of Perth, the government of the Church by bishops, and the civil places and power of churchmen, upon the reasons and grounds contained in the acts of the General Assembly declared to be unlawful within this church, we subscribe according to the determination aforesaid. <clears throat> there are several things that I want to point out in what is said here, uh, beginning with what is last first, because we're not going to comment on this when we get to it. Uh, this idea at the end or this appendix that notes that there had been a general assembly by the time they took it that has renewed this national covenant <clears throat> and that the general assembly had determined against the five articles of Perth, the government of the church by bishops and churchmen holding positions in the civil realm uh, they're now not uh, no longer are they uh, going to leave this to be understood as an undetermined matter, but they're saying, in fact, these matters have now been determined, and in fact, they are contrary to the practice of the Reformed Church of Scotland. <coughs> so that matter uh, was actually settled by the first General Assembly that they held in, in 1638. In addition to that, beside all of the, uh, the references to the present time and making accommodation to the present time, they make it very, very clear. There are several things they make clear. One is that the religion of the National Covenant is not to be construed as being something different from or apart from the Scots Confession of 1560. They view that as the full confession of faith. The National Covenant is really uh, the negative confession. It's sort of uh, taking the position by way of negation with respect to these doctrines and practices. It's not a positive confession like the Scots Confession. They also are very clear in several places that they view this covenant, this act of renewing of covenant, really, as their duty as faithful uh, descendants of the original covenanters. They view themselves as entering into the spirit of what has already been done, and they also clearly view themselves as under 
like obligation. They see that they've been bound by their forefathers. They own the obligation, and they willingly move forward in the owning of it. Now, they do this in a number of ways, and these are the things that we, we really do need to address. Uh, the first thing that they point out, and it's really the subject of the first question, is covenanting a duty commanded by God and conformable to the practice of the godly in former times? Uh, we have to say yes. Look at 2 Kings eleven seventeen. Second 2 Kings 11, verse 17. And Jehoiada made a covenant between the Lord and the king and the people, that they should be the Lord's people between the king also and the people. <clears throat> yeah, this idea of covenanting is not something new. It's not something new to them. It's biblical. And in fact, in Scotland, it was within nearly living memory that you had people, only really probably a generation before, uh, you could have tapped a few people on the shoulder and said, do you remember this? It was less than 60 years before that they had taken this covenant. And it was really only another 20 years or so before that that the Reformation had been established by law in Scotland. <coughs> so it may well have been for some of these people, a matter of living memory, certainly for a lot of these people, it would have been just a generation away. It really wasn't that far back. When they talk about what they're doing here in this covenanting, uh, defending the true religion, they're not just defending the true religion, but they're defining that. They're using the creed of the church, the Confession of Faith, 1560, as, in fact, part of that definition. They're using the National Covenant of 1581 as part of that definition of what it means to hold to the true religion. They're even going so far as to put into that whole mix uh, the application of this in the nation of Scotland by both the church and the kingdom. The way that it was professed and preached in church and state. <clears throat> so when they, when they enter into this covenant, as they're approaching this idea of covenanting, uh, they, they have very, very definite ideas. They're not covenanting to something which is uh, sort of ghostly, not quite concrete. These are very clear ideas. This is important. Uh, we have to understand covenanting is a joining ordinance whereby a sure and indissoluble knot is tied between God and his people. Look at Jeremiah 50 verse 5. Jeremiah 50 verse 5. They shall ask the way to Zion with their faces thitherward, saying, Come, and let us join ourselves to the Lord in a perpetual covenant that shall not be forgotten. We're talking about a perpetual covenant, and they, they do see themselves as standing in a line. Uh, 
they see themselves as being bound by what went before, but they also, not only are they convinced of the truth and, and do they understand themselves to be bound, but they're clearly saying here in this paragraph that they're confessing with their mouths that the present and succeeding generations in this land are bound to keep the foresaid national oath and subscription inviolable. They understand the duty. They understand the extent of that duty. They understand this descending obligation. They not only profess it, but they own it. It's part of their voluntary entering into the spirit of what has happened here. They acknowledge that. What they're saying is they understand that they are joined in this indissoluble bond. They don't have a right to shake loose from the bond of their fathers, and their posterity don't have that right either. That's how they understood it. And that, in fact, is a picture that we're given in the Bible of covenanting. We also know covenanting is a great means ordained by God to put an end to distrust and remove all doubt. Look at Hebrews 6, 16. Hebrews 6, verse 16. For men verily swear by the greater, and an oath for confirmation is to them an end of all strife. An oath is an end of all strife. Why is this so necessary? Well, remember, they're tying together the preservation of the true religion and upholding the lawful authority of the king. Remember, the, the Pope had claimed jurisdiction over Scotland. Only in 1560 did the Scots rise up and say, no, we're not, we're not accepting this. We're uh, nullifying this, this jurisdiction. But the fact that they nullified it didn't get rid of every papist or every popish sympathizer. There were a lot of them, and, and there were a lot of them even in the king's own house. In fact, a lot of them, uh, the most popish, were in all likelihood associated with the king's own house because of his mother. So there's a concern there's a concern for the true Reformed religion. There's also a concern for the, the King's Majesty in 1580. And this concern continues. James's mother actually conspired to have his father killed because his father espoused the Protestant cause. The Papists had conspired... <laughs> and actually killed the, the father of the king, the, the, uh, the boy James. He was still in his minority, but they had no problem reaching out and killing uh, his father. The, the, the politics of the time were deeply dyed with uh, your view of, of religion. And by 1638, when they're renewing this, 
things hadn't changed appreciably on that front, there were deep concerns regarding Charles I. His wife was probably a, a closeted papist. There was real concern that they might just kill Charles or, or perhaps one of his children. They didn't know what to expect. You just don't know what to expect. Jesuitical intrigue was deep. They had killed members of royal Protestant families. They had uh, sought to work rebellion. So it's not something bizarre that in this covenant they're concerned about tying together true religion and the king's majesty's authority. If you understand what was going on at the time, it makes perfect sense. They needed a Protestant king in Britain. They didn't want a papist in power in Scotland. <clears throat> so in this covenant, they tie both together. They're pledging themselves to the king up to the point at which the king is in fact upholding the true religion. That's where he has real authority. He doesn't have, and you, you, you need to understand this as well, a large part, again, of the legal section, the middle section, was proving that, that no king, no king had an authority to teach anything contrary to the true religion or to uphold anything or encourage anything contrary to the true religion in Scotland. It would have been going against every one of those acts of parliament in one way or another. <clears throat> so this duty of covenanting, this in fact ties together a concern for church and state. Ties together uh, the people and God in the profession of the true religion. Now they go on to list noblemen, barons, gentlemen, burgesses, ministers, and commons. Those are really uh, six different estates of people. Those are categories which represent uh, this covenant as being taken on behalf of every estate. You know, we might say uh, the poor, the middle class, and the rich. Or we might say the ruling class and the the ruled class. They had six very different estates in which the generality of the population fell, and that's what's encompassed here with noblemen, barons, gentlemen, burgesses, ministers, and commons. Whatever your estate in church or state, uh, you're, you're actually under consideration there. They're bringing that up and they're basically asserting that the true religion stands in, in danger. Uh, that the king's honor and the public peace of the kingdom are in a present danger. And they're pledging themselves in this way. They're taking this covenant the way they are to give their assurance that they really don't want major social upheaval. 
They don't want a civil war. They're not doing this to start trouble. They're doing this to find stability while remaining in a state of fidelity to God. So, question two. Is covenanting especially appropriate at times when the true religion stands in danger or the nation stands in peril? And the answer is yes. Look at Second Chronicles 34, 29 to 32. Second Chronicles 34, <clears throat> verses 29 through 32. Then the king sent and gathered together all the elders of Judah and Jerusalem. And the king went up into the house of the Lord, and all the men of Judah, and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and the priests, and the Levites, and all the people, great and small. And he read in their ears all the words of the book of the covenant that was found in the house of the Lord. And the king stood in his place, and made a covenant before the Lord, to walk after the Lord, and to keep his commandments, and his testimonies, and his statutes, with all his heart, and with all his soul, to perform the words of the covenant which are written in this book. And he caused all that were present in Jerusalem and Benjamin to stand to it, and the inhabitants of Jerusalem did according to the covenant of God, the God of their fathers. If, it, if they understood there was trouble, and there was reason for them to be concerned, this is wholly appropriate. In the reign of Josiah, the people of Judah, their king, their officers, judges, the priests, the Levites, see, those are like the noblemen, Barons, gentlemen, burgesses, ministers, commoners, commons. And all the citizens, small and great, renewed their covenant with the God of their fathers. During the preceding reign, the condition of the church had become deplorable by the immorality, the idolatry, and cruelty of Manasseh, who gave himself up to work all manner of evil with greediness. Now they had a like situation. From the time that James left Scotland and went to England, <clears throat> there had been a, a marked deterioration in, in the Scottish church, the purity of the worship and government of the Church of Scotland, as well as in the civil realm. The Holy Scripture had been disregarded at this time, uh, by the time Josiah comes to reign, and banished from the court of the irreligious monarch. So rare were known copies, even the young king, Josiah, when he ascended the throne, appears never to have seen nor have heard read the book of the law. When they find this, he's surprised. They don't know exactly what it is. They want to hear it. Uh, to consolidate the strengthening of the godly by bringing them into the bond of public covenant and stirring them up to place their reliance on the God of Israel, he and they engaged their hearts to seek the divine favor and blessing in their good work of reformation by an act of public covenanting. What did they do? They covenanted. Why? <clears throat> well, true religion was in trouble. A true religion had been undermined by the uh, monarch of the day. There were issues. This is what they're complaining about then. And, and here's where they bring up the issue of uh, forbearing and waiting with regard to some of these matters until a general, a free general assembly had answered these questions, which they finally had in 1638. Uh, most of the reign of 
James after he went to England, <coughs> and under Charles, uh, saw very little activity on the part of the church in Scotland. There were, there were very few assemblies. The king didn't permit all of that so much. They're concerned about that. A big part of the resistance that the, uh, the prayer book met was because of its association with all of the inconveniences brought in by Anglican influences through the reign of James in the south and then under Charles I. So they see this as a perfect time, really. A time to consolidate their their own uh, position. But a time also to advance what was really, uh, in some respect, possibly the best legal means available to push forward the agenda they had of, of renewing the Reformation in Scotland. The third, the third question, then, is ought the confession of the church to be interpreted in such a way that extends itself even to those things that are not explicitly mentioned, yet stand condemned in the spirit of the creed? Uh, the answer is yes. Look at Matthew 5, 21 and 22. Matthew 5, 21 and 22. Ye have heard that it was said by them of old time, Thou shalt not kill, and whosoever shall kill shall be in danger of the judgment. But I say unto you that whosoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. Whosoever shall say to his brother, Rocket, shall be in danger of the council. But whosoever shall say, Thou <coughs> shall be in danger of hellfire. Yeah, it's a scriptural principle to understand that where one sin or duty is forbidden or commanded, all like sins or duties are to be contemplated. Look at Matthew 15, 4 to 6, and 1 Thessalonians 5, 22. God commanded, saying, Honor thy father and mother, and he that curseth father and mother, let him die the death. But ye say, Whosoever shall say to his father or his mother, It is a gift, by whatsoever thou mightest be profited by me, and honor not his father or his mother, <coughs> thus have ye made the commandment of God of none effect by your tradition. 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 22. Abstain from all appearance of evil. And what they're concerned about here is not only to have these issues redressed, which were redressed by that first General Assembly in 1638, but they were also concerned, very concerned, that other practices not be allowed to, uh, to evolve or to be brought in. That anything that might be construed in any way as contrary to the spirit of the original national covenant and contrary to the the spirit of the Scots Confession, any doctrine or practice contrary really should be held at bay. Just because it's not explicitly condemned, just because it's not explicitly enjoined, does not mean that that practice is either to be tolerated or 
to be omitted, depending. If it's something, if it's a sin, uh, or any kind of uh, questionable activity, anything which even finds itself um, in the vicinity, that is the appearance of evil, they're saying we want to exclude that. You know, we're not waiting for an explicit application. Uh, if it's some duty, if there's some duty and a native consequence of that duty requires some thing on our part, uh, some practice or belief, we're not waiting around. <clears throat> the spirit of sin or duty <clears throat> basically tells us that anything in that family, anything that belongs to that subset is either sin or duty. We, we need to avoid it. And when we interpret the, the um, confession of the church, what they're saying is we don't want to interpret it in the narrowest possible terms. We want to interpret the creed of the church in an expansive way. We don't want to have to uh, find ourselves legislating every single individual point. If we have certain principles that have certain implications, shouldn't that be enough? They're saying, yes, it should be enough. Uh, a lot of times these are, things are very clear uh, to the people in the church. Why do we need to keep bringing this up? Why are we going to fight over this? Let's just do it. <clears throat> so they're, they're telling us that the, the creed is not simply the letter, but the spirit. There's a spirit of a creed. You know, if you, if you get locked into uh, the kind of legal wrangling that people get locked into when they're trying to avoid doing what they're supposed to do, <clears throat> if, if we want to avoid that, then we need to interpret and understand this in its broadest context. So, that's why they're doing this. That's why they're seeking to have everyone understand the confession of the church is broad. That way is broad. We we want to make sure that people understand uh, that we're not restricting the teaching or the practice of the church to a narrow area. We want it broad. Which is why when we read through the larger catechism on the commandments, we see how broad they really do construe the keeping of these commandments. You know, If we were simply to read the commandments in the Pentateuch, in, in Exodus or Deuteronomy, we might not initially, we might not grasp how broad that law is. They're making a light claim here in general with regard to the creed. There's a broadness to it really appreciate what's going on we need to appreciate that <clears throat> all 
All right, the next question. After they go through a, a little section where they're, they're very, very clear uh, to make clear that what they're doing, entering into this covenant, they're not doing it under duress, they're not doing it for any worldly preferment, they're doing this because it's the right thing to do. It's a, they, they understand it's their obligation. They don't have some other ulterior motive in what they're doing. And so when they're through with all of that protestation, what do they say? Well, they, they say, look, <clears throat> we promise and swear by the great name of the Lord our God that we're going to continue in the profession and obedience of the foresaid religion. Why do they do that? Well, this is part of covenanting, right? I mean, as God is my witness. So the fourth question is it proper to swear by the swear in the great name of the Lord our God or by the great name of the Lord our God <clears throat> the answer is yes Deuteronomy 10 20 Deuteronomy 10 verse 20 <coughs> thou shalt fear the Lord thy God him shalt thou serve and to him shalt thou cleave and swear by his name yeah thou, thou shalt swear by his name why are we doing that as I say, as God is my witness. I mean, there is a profession in that of a very deep and abiding sincerity. There's an appeal to the final judgment. Because at the end of time, when the records are rolled out, everything will be set straight. Now, were they doing this for some other reason? Did, it, did they have some other motive in view? There's no reason to believe that. They're not only protesting that they don't, they're saying they swear by the great name of the Lord our God that we don't. <clears throat> That's proper to swear by this name if we consider the following things. First of all, there is no greater nor higher name by which an oath can be confirmed. Hebrews 6, 13, and 16. Hebrews 6, verse 13. For when God made promise to Abraham, because he could swear by no greater, he swore by himself. In verse 16. For men verily swear by the greater, and an oath for confirmation is to them an end of all strife. There is no greater name. There is no greater name. There's no other way that people can swear. There's nothing more plain. There's nothing that in fact is uh, held forth to be a higher point of accountability. You know, if we want to know somebody's sincere, we still ask people to swear an oath or a vow. Even in a society which is increasingly uh, what they're calling post-Christian, 
there's an attempt to do this. But these folks are saying very clearly that their sincerity is tied up with this vowing. They're vowing in their vow. It's like adding another obligation within their obligation. This is the ultimate protesting of their sincerity that they can conceive of. And when they do it, they move on and and say that in fact, uh, by reason of all of this, that they're going to defend the true religion and resist all contrary errors and corruptions according to their vocation. By that, what they mean is, look, if you're a teacher of the Word of God, your responsibility is one thing. If you're a civil magistrate, it's another. If you're a teacher, it's one thing. If you're a pew warmer, it could be something else altogether. It's proper to swear in the name, the great name of the Lord our God, and the second place because we are expressly enjoined to swear by His name. Deuteronomy six thirteen. Deuteronomy six verse thirteen: Thou shalt fear the Lord thy God and serve Him, and shalt swear by His name. And thou shalt fear the Lord thy God and serve Him and swear by His name. It's an idea of allegiance. They're not backing down, they're pressing into the duty. They're making it very, very clear that they're not being moved by worldly preferment. Even if things turn out and and they find themselves on the right side of history for this period of time, and they're not getting persecuted. They're basically saying, whether we're persecuted or not, uh, what the outcome is, it's not really what we're concerned to emphasize here. We're concerned to emphasize here that we have this obligation and we're willing to undertake. The fifth question... And this really is something that gets stretched out over the next uh, paragraph or so. But is it necessary that practical godliness accompany outward acts of covenanting? And the answer is yes. Look at Leviticus 26.25. Leviticus 26, verse 25. And I will bring a sword upon you that shall avenge the quarrel of my covenant. And when ye are gathered together within your cities... I will send the pestilence among you, and ye shall be delivered into the hand of the enemy. Practical godliness is necessary because faith without works is dead. You say you have faith, I'll show you my faith by my works. You, You say this, but if you don't have that, there is a real question with regard to the reality. If there isn't a practical aspect, if there's not a practical uh, side of covenanting, then 
there's no point. Without a practical aspect, it's all just theory. Theory does no real good. Practically, there has to be this practical godliness accompanying this profession, this covenanting. The swearing, uh, swearing by his name. I missed that third point before that swearing falsely in the name of God is punishable. Uh, it presumes a swearing truly, which is not punishable. Leviticus 19, verse 12. Leviticus 19, verse 12. And you shall not swear by my name falsely, neither shalt thou profane the name of thy God. I am the Lord. Yeah. And this really does fit in with practical godliness as well. If there is an accompaniment, there's there's really some question as to the truthful, truthfulness. Uh, we need to keep in mind the Lord is a covenant avenging God who will not suffer those entering into covenant with him to profane it with their graceless and careless breaking of it. So, if we're swearing falsely, if that is, if we're if we're avoiding these acts of practical godliness, we're we're really provoking God. They're not concerned to provoke God. They're concerned to obey God. And they want to declare that they have no intention here then. No desire to attempt anything that may turn to the dishonor of God or the diminution of the king's greatness and authority. They're looking to do the utmost of their power to do that which is practical and conformable to uh, the, the spirit of that covenant. <clears throat> Contrary is to act falsely in the name of God. Contrary is to bring yourself under the, the curse of the covenant. They don't want to do that. They're concerned to see reform. They're concerned to see the nation turned around. They're concerned to see true religion promoted. They're, they're concerned to see the king's majesty's authority secured together with that true religion. They're very, very careful when they talk about the practicalities of this. That they are not going to allow themselves to be divided. They're not going to suffer themselves to be uh, in any way pulled apart by any suggestion, combination, allurement, or terror. That's a practical godliness it's going to accompany this you say you're going to do it you follow through <clears throat> you have to a lack of practical godliness accompanying the outward act of covenanting well it is a profanation in the name of God it is a swearing falsely in the name of God This wickedness is sometimes open contempt for the true religion. 1 Kings 19.14 1 Kings 19.14 And he 
And he said, I have been very jealous for the Lord God of hosts, because the children of Israel have forsaken thy covenant, thrown down thine altars, and slain thy prophets with the sword. And I, even I only, am left, and they seek my life to take it away. If we look at the accounts in the Bible, very, very often, the most pronounced persecutors of the people of God were people who were under the same covenant obligation as those who uh, are being persecuted. They all stood under the same obligation. It's just one took that obligation more seriously than the other. Their failure to add a practical godliness to what they're doing their failure turns into open persecution. It shows itself as contempt for true religion. Other times it's manifested in a stubborn refusal to abide in God's law. Look at Psalm 78.10. Psalm 78 verse 10. They kept not the covenant of God and refused to walk in His law. Or in an unsteadfastness and maintaining the ends contemplated in the covenant. Psalm 7837. For their heart was not right with him, neither were they steadfast in his covenant. Their heart wasn't right. They weren't steadfast. We have to remember that all transgressing of God's laws accounted a matter of covenant breaking. Isaiah 24 5. Isaiah 24 verse 5. The earth also is defiled under the inhabitants thereof, because they have transgressed the laws, changed the ordinance, broken the everlasting covenant. What is the problem? There's a lack of practical godliness joined to it. When we break God's law, we're breaking covenant with God. When we transgress, these covenanters are very, very forward in their pledge of loyalty to God and King. They're concerned about church and state. They're concerned about keeping this covenanted unity intact. They don't want to be divided. You know, every division brings about an opening for the enemy. Every division brings about another avenue that popery can find a place and reestablish itself. They don't want that. They don't want high church Anglicanism coming back in either. When they say that they're going to use all lawful means to labor to further and promote the this cause of true religion, they mean it. They're doing it in this covenant. They even point out that what they're doing is lawful. Not only is it lawful, it's in conformity to the best, most reformed and reforming laws ever passed in the nation.
Furthermore, as part of this practical godliness, they're very careful in making clear that not only are they not going to engage in these acts, these acts which are contrary to or undermining uh, the true religion or the king's majesty's authority, not only are they going to avoid anything that's divisive or would withdraw them from that cause, but they even go so far as to say that if it becomes known to them that any others are trying to do such a thing, they're going to make it known in a timely manner so that someone can put an end to it. They do not want this kind of rebellion spreading. Every avenue of rebellion for them spells the potential of a reassertion of popish authority. They don't want to be called rebels. They don't want to be accused of being in league against the king. They're very, very careful in what they're saying and why they're doing it. Now, what are you going to have if you get rid of the king? Remember, this is before Cromwell. They, didn't, they had no idea what, was, what could have come. You have a Protestant king, you manage to get rid of him, what might you end up with? Papist? They didn't want that. High church Anglican kings are bad enough. Start adding all kinds of other factors and and a fanatical devotion to the papacy and then you've got a real, real problem growing. They don't want that. <clears throat> They're not looking to be disloyal to the king, but they are, and it's important to note this because this is going to come up later on. They are very, very clear that their loyalty... And fidelity is, first of all, to the Word of God and the true Reformed religion. That their concern for upholding the king's authority is, in fact, intimately joined to, and in their covenant, is being held in the same, uh, same category of... of, of uh, promises as the, the, true, the, the true religion and the, and the devotion to the king really in their mind they have to go hand in hand you can't, you can't have one without the other they're not, they're not pledging themselves to uh, an unthinking loyalty to the king if the king turns out to be a, a, a traitor to the, the true religion or uh, to the, the legal establishment, they're not owning that. They're not saying that they're going to support them in that. So they're walking, a, they're walking a thin line here because they want to be clear on the one hand that they're not trying to be rebels. They're not trying to subvert lawful authority. On the other hand, uh, they don't want to pledge themselves to... Uh, the king in, in a way that would be to the prejudice of the true religion. 
Everything here is based upon a desire to maintain the true worship of God, the majesty of the king, the peace of the kingdom. They're not dividing all of that. That, the, the fact that we can even conceive of that as being divided is because we live post-enlightenment. I'm not sure that they could have even conceived of making that division. You know, they needed one to have the other. <clears throat> now, they go on to say that they, they can't they can't look for a blessing from God upon their proceedings unless their profession and subscription is joined to such a life and conversation as beseems Christians who've renewed their covenant with God. That is, that practical application. And therefore, they faithfully promise themselves, their followers, and all others, both in public and in particular families, to endeavor to keep ourselves within the bounds of Christian liberty. Be good examples to others of all godliness, soberness, and righteousness, and of every duty we owe to God and man. The covenant, then, is not being viewed in a very narrow sense, but it's really being viewed as binding them to a Christian walk in its broadest sense. And, in fact, in, it, in, a, in an all-encompassing sense. Now, after they go through all of this talk about practical matters and, and what this all will entail, uh, they, they then, again, call upon the living God, the searcher of our hearts, to witness their sincere desire and unfeigned resolution, and so on. Uh, as I noted, I believe, a couple weeks ago, the reason for this language here just like it was in the in the national the original national confession section the negative covenant uh, had a lot to do <clears throat> with that jesuitical doctrine that they don't keep faith with heretics that they could in fact take this covenant and not really meet it they could say oh yeah I'll do that I'll I'll take that oath I'll take that vow They're saying here, they're, what they're doing is they're calling heaven and earth to witness. Now they're acknowledging at, at some level, look, we can't guarantee that some Jesuit isn't going to take this in, and, and do with it as he will. That he isn't going to take it with crossed fingers. That he isn't going to take it uh, and, and um, repudiate it. We can't guarantee any of that. But what we can do is this. We can call upon God, who's the searcher of all hearts, to, to judge between us and them, if they do do it. In that, there's a reliance on a supernatural enforcement. They're recognizing that at some level, they simply cannot enforce the spirit of this covenant. There's no way. We can't read one another's hearts. So that brings up our sixth question. <coughs> Is it proper to call God to witness 
as a great searcher of hearts? And the answer is yes. First Chronicles 28, 9. First Chronicles 28, verse 9. And thou, Solomon, my son, know thou the God of thy father, and serve him with a perfect heart and with a willing mind. For the Lord searcheth all hearts, and understandeth all the imaginations of the thoughts. If thou seek him, he will be found of thee. But if thou forsake him, he will cast thee off forever. And the Lord requires us entering into covenant with him to have their hearts set in order. The covenanters here are saying, look, we believe our hearts are set in order. We're professing that our hearts are set in order. We're encouraging all who enter into this to set their hearts in order. But they're also saying this. We can't read anyone else's heart. We don't know. And if you're going to enter into this and you're not really going to be serious about it, if you're going to do it and you're going to remain hypocritical, if you're going to enter into this and you're going to ignore all of the implications or some of the implications, we can't maybe catch all of your, your uh, trimming. But God knows. We call upon him to be the searcher of hearts. It's accounted a great sin of the Israelites that they flattered God with their mouth, but they left their hearts set upon sinful courses. The Psalm 78, 36 and 37 again, and Ezekiel 33, 31. Psalm 78, verses 36 and 37. <clears throat> Nevertheless, they did flatter him with their mouth, and they lied unto him with their tongues. For their heart was not right with him, neither were they steadfast in his covenant. Ezekiel 33, verse 31. And they come unto thee as the people cometh, and they sit before thee as my people, and they hear thy words, but they will not do them. For with their mouth they show much love, but their heart goeth after their covetousness. The covenanters here are concerned that we join with our profession, our hearts, that, that we're doing it unfeignedly, out of sincerity, out of devotion to God, that we're, we are concerned that we <clears throat> do all that we do to the glory of God. And yet they know, again, that not everyone is going to do this. They're asking God to judge, to stand in judgment, to separate the wheat from the tares. We can't do it. We don't know who. We don't know who is naughty and who's nice. We don't know who's doing what's right here and who uh, is neglecting that heart duty in this act of covenanting. We just don't know. But God does. We know it's a great sin. Now, they, they didn't put this in here just as an afterthought or uh, sort of uh, as an insurance clause, if you will. They're putting it in here because they do understand this is part of the duty of covenanting. That we have our hearts set right before God. That we don't do this hypocritically. When you covenant, you're calling God to witness. 
if you enter into it, if you do this in a state of hypocrisy, if your heart is really going after other gods, if your heart isn't in it, you're calling God to witness, you're calling Him to bring judgment against you. You're doing it to your own hurt. What they're enjoining here is part of the duty of all sincere covenanters. Which is why it appeared not only in the original 1581, negative confession, but here again in the accommodation. This is not a duty that stands for one time or one place only. It's a duty that behooves us all, that we treat with God in a way that is, in fact, non-hypocritical. But the last thing that they discuss here is that they beseech the Lord to strengthen the covenanters by his Holy Spirit. Uh, for the end, that they'll be blessed in their desires and proceedings with a happy success, and that righteousness may flourish in the land to the glory of God, the honor of the King, and the peace and comfort of all. This is a great evangelical clause. They, they understand that it's not in their power. They don't have the native ability to keep this. this is, they're not entering into the covenant because covenanting is something which comes naturally to man, that comes to him and, and is something he can do in his own power. They understand that contrary to that, this is very, very difficult. Uh, this is a work beyond the ability of any fallen man. Now, you might say, why are they doing it? <clears throat> if they know it's beyond the ability of any fallen man, why would they even bother? This just sounds like trouble. And the answer is that we're still under the law to Christ. We're still responsible to keep the law of God. We need the Spirit of God. So question seven, is it necessary to rely on the Holy Spirit working in the covenanter to strengthen him to keep the ends contemplated? The answer is yes. Look at Romans 8.26. Romans 8, verse 26. <clears throat> Likewise, the Spirit also helpeth our infirmities. For we know not what we should pray for as we ought, but the Spirit itself maketh intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. The Spirit itself maketh intercession for us. Why? How? With groanings that cannot be uttered. Uh, because it's beyond our capacity. We're entering into a work. We're joining ourselves. Think about this. In this covenant, we're joining ourselves to God. God who is perfect. God who is holy. God who isn't going to fail in upholding His end. And we are entering into this and we should know that we are just we're set for failure because of who we are. We need grace. We need the Spirit of God working in us. We need help. We can't do this ourselves. They're not Pelagians. They're, they're reformed. They understand that they don't have this. No one, no one is able apart from the Spirit of God working in them to do these good works contemplated in covenanting. Look at John 15, uh, 4-6, Philippians 2.13. 
and 2 Corinthians 3, 5. John 15, verses 6. <coughs> abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself, except it abide in the vine. No more can ye, except ye abide in me. I am the vine, ye are the branches. He that abideth in me, and I in him, the same bringeth forth much fruit. For without me ye can do nothing. If a man abide not in me, he is cast forth as a branch, and is withered, and men gather them and cast them into the fire, and they are burned. Philippians 2, verse 13. For it is God which worketh in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. 2 Corinthians 3, verse 5. Not that we are sufficient of ourselves to think anything as of ourselves, but our sufficiency is of God. Our sufficiency is of God. And, and again, they, they understand that the, the sufficiency of all of this is of God. How well did this work? Well, this national covenant really becomes the cornerstone of, of what we would now call the Second Reformation in the British Isles. And until men began to relax their position and kind of sit back and think, oh, I can take it easy, I can, I can coast. Uh, the National Covenant was doing well. It was provoking men to good works. It was calling them forth to do that which is well-pleasing in God's sight. They, they did stick together for a time. Now, had they followed through with the provisions of it, they, they would have remained together. But they didn't. National Covenant, the National Covenant was a turning point, this renewal in 1630, it was a turning point that in some respect leads up to and, and anticipates uh, the, the Westminster Assembly and, and all that will bring that about. The National Covenant really is going to pave the way for the Solemn League and Covenant between the three kingdoms of England, Scotland, and Ireland. The National Covenant is going to show the way how to bind a nation. In this case, how to bind three nations to the reformed, the true reformed religion. And how to seek continual reform under this guise. The National Covenant is going to do all of that and more. And it continues to this day to exert an influence in the life of the more conservative churches in Scotland. It's part of the bond of, of our ecclesiastical union and communion uh, because we're descended from that church. You know, We don't have any right to break this bond. The people who were taking it didn't view themselves as a right to break the bond that their ancestors had passed on to them. They also understood that they were binding future generations. We need to own that. We need to own up to that. We need to recognize that we have, in fact, been brought in and under that obligation. The National Covenant holds out principles which are applicable not only in Scotland but everywhere. Some of those principles are going to come up again 
and we'll be discussing them when we begin looking at the Solemn League and Covenant. Because some of these principles are, in fact, principles which are necessary to affect any kind of real reform according to the Word of God. The Scots had more experience in this realm. The Scots were very careful in this realm. And it isn't until there is a decline in practical, that practical application, that we find the, the National Covenant being viewed as a burdensome appendage that they're seeking to rid themselves of. The next time we're going to look at the Solemn League and Covenant, we'll begin looking at that. We want to talk about that for a couple of weeks and why that's important and how that in its own way exemplifies this idea of covenanting. You know, public social covenanting is an ordinance of God, practicable under the New Testament. It's binding upon the moral person. The National Covenant is binding upon the moral person. Uh, and when we say that, we say that in terms of both the nation of Scotland and the Church of Scotland, and those who are descended from it. There are principles of abiding, validity, and practicability which make it so. Some of them we discussed in more detail and some in less. But some of this we'll take up again when we talk about the Psalm Laden Covenant.